Ever since the beginning, God's plan and purpose was to have a people for himself, a people that would be in relationship with him, in union with him, with union come union. God creates us in his image and likeness that we might enjoy union or oneness with him and with one another. And God places us in an incredible place to enjoy him and one another and gives us the ability to commune with everything in all of creation except for one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to commune with me and one another in all of creation, but don't commune with that tree. Well, you know how the story goes. Um, in our rebellion, in our desire for something greater than what God has already given us, we commune with the tree. And in communing with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we lose our union with God and our union with one another. We are separated from God and one another. And ever since that day, God has been on a mission to restore us to union with himself. And that's where we find Jesus in our gospel reading this morning. As you remember, this is the weekend of the Passover in John chapter 6. And Jesus is teaching how he fulfills the Passover feast and reenacting it as he goes from feeding the 5,000 to walking on the water to saying that he is the bread, the manna that came down from heaven to now in a synagogue culminating the Passover feast. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will never die, but have eternal life. This is how you abide in me, and I will abide in you. And it's a little bit strange, as it was then. And it's, and it's a little bit confusing, as it was then. And yet every Sunday as followers of Jesus with grace, we come together and we respond to Jesus's invitation to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And we do that as followers of Jesus have done for 2,000 years. We come to Jesus around his table through the bread and the wine. And this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to share why we do that and how we do that. And the reason why I want to share why we do that and how we do that is this. It's too easy for us to just go through the motions and not really encounter the Lord Jesus. It's, it's too easy for us to come Sunday after Sunday and hear the words and say the words and go to the table and hold out our hands and eat the bread and drink the cup and not really understand 
how we are participating in the story of God that culminates in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ who says, do this in remembrance of me. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we go through our Eucharistic prayer, that you will be strengthened in your faith, that you will be built up in heart and mind in the theology of Holy Communion. And that this will increase your encounter of the risen Lord Jesus who promises to make himself known to us in the breaking of the bread. And so... um, I'm going to not so much preach today as I am going to teach. And there's some handouts, and um, you've got uh, a choice here. And I hope that you uh, choose the path less taken. Um, Spring break is still upon us, and for those of you who are still kind of in spring break mode, um, you you are welcome to just lean back and enjoy the love and the presence of the Lord. Uh, for those of you who really want to, uh, to go deep and learn kind of our theology model and practice of communion, as we have inherited it from Jesus through the scriptures and the early church, through the Reformation, and as followers of Jesus who are Anglican and a part of 77 million followers of Jesus around the globe, then I want to encourage you to take out that handout and follow along and take notes. And um, I'm going to give you not only the outline of our Eucharistic prayer, but uh, the scripture that undergirds it and kind of the, the heart that is helpful for us to have as we participate in it. All right? So, uh, so here we go then. Um, we begin approaching the table with what is called the sursum corda. There is this exchange, this participatory response that we say aloud together as we approach the Lord Jesus at the table. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Sursum corda is Latin for lift up your hearts. And what this exchange reminds us of is that we are actually coming to the Lord Jesus at the table, but spiritually we are being lifted into the very presence of God. We see this in... Paul's letters to the church, encouraging them, building them up in their identity in Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, 1 through 3, since you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. Why? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is about our identity. That our position has changed. We are no longer outside 
the presence of God, banished from his prison presence because of our sin and rebellion, we are now restored to the presence of God, seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father in a place of honor and dignity and worth. And so we approach the table remembering who we are. Who we are at the Father's right hand. Now, interestingly enough, um, the Sursum Corda uh, goes way back, and people have been saying this response um, as early as 100 AD. We have written documentation of this in the Didache, and all the way through Hippolytus of Rome in 220, that this response in the Eucharistic prayer is happening in present-day France, in present-day Eastern Europe, and in present-day North Africa. The people of God are saying this together as they approach the Lord Jesus around his table. Sorry, I nerd out on this a little bit. I just think that's cool. And so that's, that's how we begin to come um, to the Lord, remembering who we are and what our position is. And then we come to this place called um, the proper preface, um, the, the proper way to come before the face of God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to what? To give thanks to you. And what this is doing is, is it's a proclamation that's setting the tone for approaching the table of God, right? Do you get this? This is not kind of a somber, depressing, unworthy, woe is me feeling coming into the presence of God around his table. This is a response of gratitude and attitude of, of joy for all of the blessings of this life and in particular for how great our Father is. It's a tone of thanksgiving. And it's why Holy Communion is also called the Eucharist. Eucharist uh, being Latin for give thanks. Give thanks. And so the movement toward the table uh, sets a tone of thanksgiving as we come to God and bless him for who he is. And in particular, we also give thanks and bless God for what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we do that based on the theme of the church year. And so um, we say it differently in the communion prayer depending on what season of the year. Okay, so what's the first season in the church calendar? Advent. Advent. And so in Advent, at this point in the Eucharistic prayer, we give thanks to God because you sent your beloved son to redeem us from sin and death and to make us heirs in him of everlasting life, that when he shall come again in power and great triumph to judge the world, we may without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. All of these proper prefaces, thanksgiving to the Father through the Son, are on the back of your handout. Look at what we do during Lent. So in Lent, we give thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord, who was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. And by his grace, we are able to triumph over every evil and to live no longer for ourselves alone, but for him who died for us and rose again. 
So we come to the face of God, giving thanks to the Father through the Son, and in particular, for the different ways that Jesus has brought us into reconciliation with God in the seasons of Lent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, um, Advent, Easter, Pentecost. You get them. There's seven. Um, it focuses our attention on the Father and on the Son. And then what begins to happen is we have this next movement as the people of God in the presence of God around the table of God, and it's called the Sanctus. The Sanctus. Anybody know what the word Sanctus means in Latin? Holy. Holy. This is heaven's worship song. It's the choice of angels and archangels. This is the song of choice for all the company of heaven who forever proclaim the glory of God. And we, we see this throughout the story of God. We see this uh, glimpse into heaven's chorus given to the people of God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter six. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. And with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And we not only see that picture given to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant, we see that vision of heavenly worship given to John in Revelation 4.8. And he says, uh, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and even under its wings and day and night... They never stop singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the sanctus. It acknowledges the beauty and the sovereignty of God. And it connects us with the great company of angels and saints and heaven reminding us that we are and our worship is about something so much bigger and so much significant than just ourselves or just what we do in this location on Sundays. It is the, the meaning of life to ascribe worship to our God. And it's the song we'll be singing for all eternity, so we practice it every Sunday. We're going to be good at it by the time we get there. Um, I think, I'm going to nerd out again, I think it's really interesting. Um, again, references uh, to the singing of the sanctus around the table of God by the people of God. We first see um, in the writing of Clement in Rome in 96 AD. Um, just by way of other interesting nerdy facts, that's earlier than some of your, the Gospels that we read were written. 
It's kind of interesting. Then we move to what is called the great thanksgiving. The great thanksgiving. Um, Let's read that out loud together, shall we? We give thanks to you, O God, for the goodness and love which you have made known to us in creation, in the calling of Israel to be your people, in your words spoken through the prophets, and above all, in the word made flesh, Jesus your Son. For in these last days you sent him to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world. In him you have delivered us from evil and made us worthy to stand before you. In him you have brought us out of error into truth, out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life. What are we, what are we doing there? We're doing there what Paul reminds the Colossian church to do. That whatever we're doing in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what we're doing. And what you notice is that the great thanksgiving is simply a summary of God's story. It's a summary of God's passionate pursuit to be in a relationship with humanity culminating in the salvation of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the the little summary of the divine narrative that reminds us that we have been restored to union, to communion with God and with one another through Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest thanksgiving that we could be thankful for. It's the thanksgivings of thanksgivings. It's the great thanksgiving. Born of Mary, he shares our life. Eating with sinners, he reminds us that all are welcome and accepted. Guiding us to be like little children, he leads us and watches us going out and coming in like a good shepherd. Visiting those who are sick, he heals us. Dying on the cross, he forgives us and rescues us. Rising from the dead, he gives us a fresh start. That's what we're thankful for. And as we give thanks to God together, we remember how he has rescued and reconciled and redeemed and restored us. This is the memorial acclamation where we uh, remember how Jesus fulfills the Passover meal. And through spoken word and prayer, Jesus becomes spiritually present to us. And we we do this by uh, using the words that Jesus said at the Last Supper. 
In Matthew 26, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. When we speak forth the words that Jesus spoke, we not only remember him, but we believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, his word brings life. This is the same word that spoke creation into existence. The same word that spoke Adam and Eve into existence. The same word that gave life to the dry bones in the desert. The incarnate word of God speaking the word of God that's bringing life and recreation to our souls. It's a powerful moment. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And the, the word there is anamnesis. And unlike the word amnesia, which means to lose memory, the word anamnesis means to bring back a memory. And what we are doing is we are recollecting the memory of Jesus and we are coming around that table with him, acknowledging that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, fulfilling the Passover feast. And as we recall the past event of the Last Supper in such a manner, um, it, it becomes significant and powerful and real and operative in the present. And we do this by just speaking the words that Jesus spoke. Do this in anamnesis of me. And so we move from the memorial acclamation with those words of institution to celebrating and proclaiming what we call the mystery of faith. The mystery of of faith. Now, write these scriptures down and, and look at them this week because I think this is really cool. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. Colossians 1, 25 through 27. And 1 Timothy 3, 16. All of those are examples of the mystery of faith. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Um, in Colossians, he says... It's the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. 
To them, God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this mystery? It is that God has a story, he has a plan, and nothing can thwart it, nothing can stop it. He wants a people for himself to be in communion with him and one another to declare his praises to the world. And the way that he accomplishes that purpose and that mission is through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And what was once a mystery is no longer hidden or secret. It is revealed and made known because Jesus has come. And so when we proclaim the mystery of faith, we're proclaiming what it is that Jesus has done to restore us to right relationship with God. We remember his death We proclaim his resurrection and we await his coming in glory. That is the mystery of faith. Paul reminds Timothy this way, 1 Timothy 3.16, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and taken up to glory. That's the mystery of faith that we proclaim. Sometimes we say what? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now, pet peeve. Don't say Christ will come again. We don't say Christ has died. Christ is risen. We say Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's where the emphasis lies. Because we're remembering who he is and what he has done and proclaiming that it's for the whole world. We remember his death, the bread and the wine invoke the memory of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we are reminded that by his grace, through faith in him, we're forgiven. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more. We remember his death and we proclaim his resurrection. When we come to the table, we are proclaiming his resurrection and that we are a resurrection people. That Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is alive, and that by his grace and through faith in him, we are alive with him. We are raised with him in his resurrection. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives within us and gives us his life. And we await his coming in glory. This is a proclamation of assurance that we have confidence that Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead and redeem the entire creation, and that as his people, we are going to be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth where it's described in Revelation 7. Never again will we hunger. Never again will we thirst. The sun's not going to beat down upon us or any scorching heap. Why? Because the lamb at the center of the throne will be our shepherd and he will lead us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from our eye. That is a a proclamation of great expectation that helps us 
get up and out of the trials and the temptations that press us and trouble us on every side because we remember that this world is not our home and that there is more to life than this and there is a place where we are going that is good and void of all things bad. We remember his death. We proclaim his resurrection. We await his coming and glory. And then we move to the heart of the entire Eucharistic prayer. And this part of the prayer is called the epiclesis. Epi, meaning center. Clesis, like a cleaver, the center of action. And so this is the center of action. This is where somehow the Holy Spirit comes on and in the bread and the wine in a way that no one completely understands that makes it the body and blood of Christ. And so we pray, sanctify by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Lord Jesus said it, we believe it. Holy Spirit, come and do it, Father. Receive the glory. We invite the Holy Spirit to be present and active, making the bread and the wine the body and blood of Christ. Because Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life. That's how I abide in you and you in me. Now, um, I, I don't understand how that works. Right? Any more than I understand how my iPhone works. I don't understand how I could pick up uh, an iPhone and I don't know how the light comes on. I don't know how I can punch digits and call one of you and, and, and hear your voice and know your heart and connect with you in a way that is real and good for our relationship. And I really don't understand how FaceTime works. Because I can now see you when we're having that connection. And in, in many ways, uh, communion is, is like that, right? No one really knows how it works. But God knows how it works. And God makes it work. Somehow by the Spirit's power, the bread and the wine become more than just bread and wine. The bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ real spiritual food that connects us with Christ and delivers all the spiritual promises and blessings of a relationship with him that truly nourishes and builds up our souls. And so by the Spirit's power, we do more than just eat and drink common food. We partake, we feed on Christ in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. And uh, this, is, this has been, how exactly this works has been debated for a long time. There's basically four different perspectives. And we hold to three of them. We don't hold to one of the four, we hold to three of the four. The first is um, a 10th century perspective called transubstantiation, and we do not hold to that view. But as followers of Jesus... 
who have inherited the deposit of faith passed down from Jesus through the scriptures and the church through the Reformation um, into the Anglican church, we hold the three others. And the three others are a best practice assimilation of the theology of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli. And Luther had what he would describe as a real presence view. That by faith, the power of the Holy Spirit makes that communion with Jesus real in the bread and the wine. Calvin has a view that talks more about our real presence in the presence of Christ and that we truly are lifted to him and feed on him by faith. Um, and Ulrich Zwingli has a memorial view that um, when we take the bread and the wine, we are professing our faith in God. And what Thomas Cramner is able to do in the English Reformation is he's able to take those three perspectives and blend them together not choosing one, but assimilating the three, and you find all three of those theological perspectives in the Anglican Communion Prayer. It's a best practices with the idea that seeing Jesus through the bread and the wine from those three different perspectives are all helpful and comprehensively help us encounter and feed on Jesus best. But there's also a point in the epiclesis where it isn't just the bread and the wine. We're asking the Holy Spirit to come and act in the center of our lives. We pray, sanctify us also. That we may serve you in unity with consistency and all peace. What we're doing is we're inviting the Holy Spirit to be present and active and making us his holy people set apart for good and holy purposes. And this really is how we respond to Jesus' prayer in John 17. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. And when we feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving, we remember that Christ has already made us pure and holy and blameless and that the Spirit of God is at work in our lives and nourishing us through the body and blood of Christ to become holy as he is holy. Paul says to the church in Corinth in chapter 6, verses 9 through 16, there's a lot of stuff that you used to do that was a part of your fallen nature that came out of your rebellion and your sin against God. And when you do those things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, don't be deceived. Neither sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, Epiclesis. And that moves us 
to the crescendo, to the culmination of the communion prayer, which is called the great amen, the joyful conclusion that acknowledges our oneness with God based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us and restored us and reconciled us to God forever. And that's why on the screen, it's printed in capital letters with an exclamation part because it's an amen. It's an amen for some of you. Okay, I can go with that. Um, We come to the breaking of the bread at that moment. And uh, historically, and oftentimes we do, particularly in the season of Easter, have this response. Alleluia, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. And what that means is that Christ isn't sacrificed right there in the present. That's not what Christ is sacrificed means. Christ was sacrificed in the past on the cross for our sin. But because of that one sacrifice for all in the past, it is active and real and effective for us in the present and all the way into the future. And therefore, we get to be at the great banquet table of God and celebrate the great feast or the great party. And Paul describes this uh, in part to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. He's saying all of your boasting isn't good. All the stuff that you do, all the stuff that you have, all the ways that you're living for yourself, that is no good. So stop doing that. Don't you know that a little yeast, which is bad, leavens the whole batch of dough? And he says, get rid of that old yeast, the former way of thinking, our former uh, idols, our former allegiances. Get rid of that old yeast so that you may have a new unyeasty, unleavened batch as you really are. In other words, Christ has removed sin from you, so really act like it. Live according to your identity, which is pure and holy and blameless. He goes on to say, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, it's the celebration of our identity as the restored, the healed people of God who are pure and blameless, invited to the table of God for the great banquet feast for all eternity. And every Sunday when we come to the table, we are reminded that that's where we're headed. And finally, the invitation, where we say, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ has died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. This is the original altar call. That other thing that you hear called an altar call, or maybe you experienced that in a former expression of the local church or or at camp, just to put some perspective around that, that doesn't exist in the experience of the church until the Great Awakening, when Charles Finney in the 1830s started incorporating that in American revivalism. 
Okay? So there, there is more history uh, in the people of God coming to the Lord's table for communion as the altar call than there is for other ways that that altar call is practiced. That other altar call is a 19th century American invention. Coming to the Lord, professing our faith, um, acknowledging uh, a posture of humility in the presence of God, knowing that we cannot stand in his presence, that we are separated from him unless he does something to intervene and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And coming with open hands and open hearts and, and feeding on him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we remember him, giving thanks that it is done, that it is finished that we have been made whole and restored to relationship with God and relationship with one another forever, that's the altar call. And we do it every week so that we are reminded who Jesus is and reminded who we are so that we continually profess our faith and proclaim our faith and celebrate who we are in Christ. And we come forward Remembering what Jesus says in Luke 12 or Matthew 10, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge before his Father in heaven. And so we, we come joyfully acknowledging Jesus as the forgiver of our sin and the leader of our life and the healer of our souls. It's our pledge of loyalty. It's a way that we show obedience to the King and, and swear our allegiance to his kingdom. And we do that remembering who Jesus is. And our hearts, by faith and with thanksgiving. And somehow when we hold out our hands and someone says the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, we are a part of a story that began in the garden and went to a desert and is fulfilled by Jesus being born in Nazareth who goes to a cross and dies that we might become right with God and is raised that by his spirit we might be continually nourished and transformed into his likeness from glory to glory and that one day we're going to eat with him in his presence with every other follower, past, present, and future. And we take that bread and we step into that story. We step in to that identity and we dip that bread in the cup and we taste and we see that the Lord is good, that he has done it. And that's why we have prayer teams to continue the work of the Holy Spirit to help us get unstuck and to, to be who we are in Christ that we might live no longer for ourselves but for him who died and rose again for us. That's why we do what we do around the Lord's table. That's how we do 
what we do around the Lord's table, joining with the saints of old, joining with all of the company of heaven to celebrate the oneness that we have with God and with one another in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for uh, this time. And I ask, Lord, that uh, the meditations and the reflections of our heart would build us up in our identity, would strengthen us to live and give away the faith, and will help us to more deeply and more intimately encounter you and be nourished by you and become more like you, not just going through the motions, but truly being your people in your presence for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.